Well, I entitled this message today, Religion Versus the Gospel. Religion Versus the Gospel. My heart has been kind of grieved lately as I've uh, been meeting people, church people, people that are going to church, but they don't understand the gospel. And they live their lives enslaved in kind of a works theology, always trying to appease God by something they do, and they don't understand the goodness of our God. A couple of years ago, I had a, a brother call me, and he said that a, a group from another church was coming to his house. And, and at first, it was, they were nice, and they started doing a little Bible study with him. He liked that. They're really nice people. And then about three weeks, they said, you know, we have a problem with your church, which is this church here. He says, because you guys aren't a real church, he says, you allow musical instruments up here. And also, I can tell you, you're not saved. Because it's not just receiving Christ, you also have to be baptized. And not baptized in your church, you have to be baptized in our church. That's religion. It's not the gospel. Religion is where you work. The motivation to obey God is fear and insecurity. In the gospel, the gospel of Christ, the motivation... To obey God comes from a grateful heart. Religion wants to appease an angry God through performance. But the gospel wants to know personally a loving God who has reached out to you in his saving work. Now I share this story because we're in the book of Mark, chapter 2, verses 23. And we're going to go through chapter 3, verse 6. It's only 12 verses. But Jesus... At this point, he's going to be walking through some grain fields with his disciples. And he's going to be almost accosted by some religious leaders. Now, to, to kind of bring you up to speed here, in, in Mark chapter 2, Jesus has gained the reputation as a healer. He's a man that performs healings and miracles. He casts out demons and he heals people. And particularly in, in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Jesus healed a man who was paralyzed. I don't know if you remember the story, but they lowered him through the roof. And he healed this man that was paralyzed. But before he did it, he said, your sins are forgiven. Well, that blew their minds. And then he has the audacity from there to go start hanging out with what they call tax collectors and sinners. So he becomes enemy number one on their list. And so wherever Jesus goes, he's got these religious people kind of following him, trying to catch him. They are locked into religion. And in the section of scripture that we're in today, I'm hoping that you guys will see the emptiness of religion, but you'll also see the beauty of the gospel. My concern for many today in the 21st century, and probably many of you here, is you're exhausted. You don't, what, you don't really know what it means to, to find rest, true rest for your soul. And many of you, even though you're in the church, even though you've prayed, quote-unquote, the sinner's prayer, your life is kind of locked on this performance treadmill. And maybe that exhaustion is more than something just physical. There might be something spiritual there. You know, Paul the Apostle, he wrote to the Galatians because the Galatians started out strong. 
They receive the gospel of Christ. They realize that, wow, this is grace. And then very quickly, some people came in and brought a mixture of Judaism and paganism. And all of a sudden, these guys are departing from the true faith. And they're running right back into a religious system. And this is what Paul says in Galatians 1 verse 6. He says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which isn't a gospel at all. And my concern is that many of you are locked. You started out strong, but now you're absolutely exhausted. And it might just be because you've fallen back into some kind of religious work. I want you to ask yourself this question as we go through this text. Is my trust in my religious effort or is my trust in the gospel of Christ? Let's read the text. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. That's Mark chapter 2, verse 23. And it came about that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, See here, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest, And ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he gave it also to those who were with him. And he was saying to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Consequently, the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. And he entered again into a synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath in order that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, rise and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately began taking counsel with Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Okay, the first thing we're going to see in this message today is that religion burdens people. But the gospel, the gospel of Christ, it frees people. Religion overloads people with rituals and rules, but the gospel releases people from the bondage of religion. In this section... Jesus is going to be walking through these grain fields with his disciples and they're just picking little heads of grain and they're taking them, they're putting them in their hands, they're rubbing them together, getting the chaff off and then they're just eating them. Kind of like trail mix. Yeah, they're hungry, you know, they're just walking through. And they're being followed by these religious leaders. Now Mark, when he wrote this section, he has two parables that Jesus shares with the Pharisees Right before verse 23. And I want us to look at that first because it sets this whole thing up. Verses 21 and 22. Let's read them together. Mark chapter 2 verses 21 and 22 says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise the patch pulls away from it. The new from the old and the worst tear and the worst tear results. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is lost. The skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Jesus is making a point here. He's saying, I came to introduce a new work. 
not to patch up the old work. I brought a whole new work of God. This is a new covenant in my blood, is what he's saying here. And so he uses these examples here of an unshrunk cloth and the wine. See, I think what happened is is in the beginning, because this is pretty much the start of his ministry. Jesus comes in and in Mark chapter 1, it says that they were amazed at his teaching. Well, I think what happens, they're thinking, wow, we'll just kind of include him into the whole Pharisee system of religion. He's cool. Not only that, this guy can heal. He does stuff, right? And so I think in their minds, they're thinking, we'll just kind of add him into, into our religious system. But that's not what Jesus came for. So what does Jesus do? He shares these parables, the unshrunk cloth. It's like taking a new piece of cloth and putting it on an old garment. As soon as you wash it and it dries, the new cloth shrinks and it rips away, ruining both the new cloth and the garment. You have wine. You do not put new wine, which is unfermented, into an old wineskin. Old wineskins are are, they're very brittle. And as soon as that new wine goes in and it starts to ferment, it expands and it bursts the wineskin, ruining both the wine and the skin. Jesus did not come to be part of this religious system. It was failing. It was passing away. God is bringing in a whole new work. And then Mark shares this story where we have the disciples and Jesus and they're just walking together through the grain fields. And it's the Sabbath day. And wherever Jesus goes, he has these Pharisees, these religious leaders kind of follow him. They're trying to catch him. At this point, he's enemy number one, man. He's going against their religious traditions. Their religious traditions, remember that. And he's making them angry. So they want to catch these disciples. They want to catch Jesus doing something so that they can say, Aha! You're not truly from God. You've broken his law. He's a fake. He's a phony. And you need to understand that this act of the disciples eating the grain, the Lord allowed it. I think it's intentional. Jesus is actively going against the pharisaical system of the Sabbath. Now, he started that in John chapter 5. Remember the story about the man who was sick for 38 years by the pool of Bethesda? Jesus goes there and he heals the man. But then he tells him something. He says, hey, pick up your mat. Take it home. Oh, the Pharisees were so upset about that. They could care less that the guy got healed. What did they care about? He picked up his mat. It was a tradition that had been developed. The Pharisees were so mad that this man would go against their tradition. Now understand that Moses in the law basically said that you couldn't work or carry heavy burdens. That was it in the law. But what the Pharisees did is they added 39 extra little minute laws to the Sabbath. And what they did is they made the Sabbath a burden. When the Sabbath is meant for rest, when the Sabbath is supposed to be a time where we come down from heavy labor, it's God-ordained. Genesis chapter 1, God wanted people to rest after work. The Pharisees made it into a burden, a difficulty for people. They made the Sabbath even worse than the other days. You had to check and make sure you weren't doing anything. So Jesus in the gospel, what he wants to do is he wants to usher in freedom. He defies the gospel tradition. And so he intentionally permits his disciples to eat the grain. He wants wants these guys to get mad. 
He's having them check whether or not their tradition is truly of God. And what Jesus is doing here is he's showing two radically different paradigms. Two radically different spiritual paradigms. The first one, which is religion. It's a burden. It's enslavement. The second one, which is the gospel. It is a free gift of God. It is freedom and it's rest. Now, most people in the world live in religion, by far. And religion takes a million forms, doesn't it? We see all kinds of religion out there. And I think there's probably some of you here that you don't know it, but you're actually living in the burden of religion. Here's three ideas about how religion is. Some religions are nationalistic. You connect to God by coming into a people group and you take on the markers of that society. Some religions are spiritualistic. You reach God by working your way through levels of consciousness or transformations. And some religions are legalistic like the Pharisees here. Where you have to follow a strict code of conduct. And if you do, then you can be all right with God. But all religions have the same logic. If I perform, if I obey a certain set of rules, then I'm accepted. Religion is about you. It's self-centered. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is diametrically opposed to religion. It is totally different from religion. It is the understanding that I am fully accepted in Christ. It is not my work. It is His work. I am free now to love and worship God. It is not what I do. It is what He has done. And I rest I rest in Jesus' work and not my own religious performance. Jesus said this in John 8, 36. He says, so if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. So Jesus, what he wants to do here, he wants to show the absurdity of their thinking. And so what he does, he shares shares a well-known story. Look at verses 25 and 26. He said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and became hungry? He and his companions, how they entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and they ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he gave it also to those who were with him. So what Jesus does is he makes a comparison between what happened to David and the priests at Nob and the disciples eating these little heads of grain. David brings his men and they're starving. And they go into the synagogue. And the priests allow them, they give them the bread, the consecrated bread that was against the law. Leviticus 24 says that only the priests are allowed to eat the consecrated bread. And Jesus is making a comparison here. He's saying God allowed that. And the Pharisees would agree, yeah, God did allow it. Why? Because God has a concern for his people. God allowed these men to eat the bread. And Jesus is saying, God allowed that, but you guys are coming down like a hammer on my disciples in your tradition when they pick little heads of grain and eat them because they're hungry. This is his point. Surely God is more concerned with meeting the needs of his people than he is with protecting religious traditions. The the Pharisees here, they have their priorities confused. And their tradition has blinded them to the very heart of God. And that's what religion does. It burdens you. It blinds you. It traps you. But what the gospel does is it frees you. Now your heart is open to God. 
Now you worship Him with a right heart, not one that's all in strict conformity to a law, but that is free now to obey the law because you know it pleases God. The problem is in religion you turn traditions into law and you get so concerned with minute details that you miss the bigger picture of God's saving work. But in the life of Christians, guys, the law of God, it, it, it functions in a totally different way. The law shows you the life of love that you want to live before God who has done so much for you. You study and obey the law in order to discover the kind of life that God wants for you. It's for your good. It's not a burden. You don't approach the law out of duty. You approach it out of desire. The very joy of your heart is to serve the Lord and obey Him. Because you've been freed to do that in Christ. It's no longer this crushing weight. You now are free to actually say, Yeah, I want to obey God because I love Him. And I want to know Him more deeply. Christianity is unreligion. It is not religion. And here's a litmus test for you of whether or not you understand the gospel. What do you do when you fail? What do you do when you fail? Do you run from God and do you try to clean up your act before you go back into the throne room and ask forgiveness? You try to make things all good, kind of sweep it under the carpet. If that's what you do, you do not understand the gospel. And you are stuck in living in the religion. Because the gospel frees you. When we fail, we can go directly in the throne room of God with confidence. Because we know that the gospel of Christ, His blood, has cleansed us from all sin. And now we have the freedom to go there even when we fail. And we have a loving Father that forgives us. That's the test. Religion is a burden. But the gospel frees people. That's the first thing. Second thing. Religion, it hinders rest. But the gospel, it frees us and enables us to rest. Verses 27 and 28. See, religion, what it does is it keeps us on this endless treadmill of performance. But in the gospel, you actually find real rest for your soul. Verses 27 and 28 says, Jesus says, and he was saying to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Consequently, the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So he says here that the Sabbath was made for man. Man was created first, then the Sabbath. That's Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. The Sabbath was instituted as a blessing. It was instituted as a time for man after labor to find rest. Not only rest from his labor, but rest for his soul. It was a time for him to worship the Lord, to see the fruit of his labor. And to go, wow, it is good. And now I can actually enjoy the fruit of my labor. It's not a restriction. It's a freedom. And God gave it because He loves us. He has a desire for us to be healthy. That we can love our families. We can serve God. And what Jesus does here is He affirms the principle of the Sabbath. The need for rest. And what Sabbath means, it literally means deep rest. It means peace. It's a synonym of shalom. Peace with God. Deep rest for your soul. It was established by God in the garden before sin as a time of rest. Rest for your soul. Sabbath was made for man. 
Now, for Christians and non-Christians alike, particularly, I think, in our society in the 21st century, I think it's getting harder and harder to actually find rest, and particularly rest for our soul. We, it is just crazy busy, is it not? And you sometimes feel that push so much, you don't even know what it means to rest physically, let alone rest for my soul. God's desire is that we honor Him with our time, right? We know that one. We're to be good stewards with our time. Now, Ephesians puts it this way in terms of time stewardship for the Christian. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17 says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We want to honor God with our lives. And so we want to do the Lord's will. But the problem is, and I think there's a couple things that have caused this. One, technology. Technology is supposed to make our life easier, but I think it's sped everything up. Matter of fact, most people I know now have the the PDA phones and all that, and and they they see their emails, they're constantly on it all the way until they go to bed. They wake up, the first thing they do, they pick up their PDA, and they're, they're constantly active. Their brains are active. They never allow themselves a time to rest. The other thing is globalization. Our world is getting smaller, isn't it? And suddenly we have this world market. I mean, who ever thought that we would care whatever happened to the Greece economy? But we care. We care what happens to China's economy. We care about all these other nations. Why? Because they affect us. They affect our economy, which means that companies are making their people work longer and longer hours. Our bosses are under pressure. You're under pressure to perform. And so you not only perform in your life, but now you go into performance into your faith. And you get trapped into the cycle of religion. But I read this really cool article, if you will. It's actually part of a book. And this woman's name is Judith Shulevitz. And she's talking about Sabbath, Sabbath rest. How do you rest? I want you to hear what she says now. She's, she's a, a, a Jewish woman, but she's not a practicing Jew. I guess you call her a secular Jew. She's, she's the editor of New York Magazine, but she wrote this book. And it's entitled The Sabbath World. And this is what she said. She said, My mood would darken until by Saturday afternoon I'd be unresponsive and morose. My normal routine, which involved brunch with friends and swapping tales of misadventures in the relentless quest for romance and professional success, made me feel impossibly restless. I started spending Saturdays by myself, and after a while I got lonely, and I did something that as a teenager I was profoundly put off by my religious education, and I never could have imagined wanting to do this. I began dropping by a nearby synagogue. And it was only much later that I developed a theory about my condition. I was suffering from a lack of Sabbath. There is ample evidence that our relationship to work is out of whack. Ours is a society that pegs status and overachievement. We can't help admiring workaholics. Let me argue instead on behalf of an institution that has kept workaholism in a reasonable check for thousands of years. Most people mistakenly believe that all you have to do to stop working is not work. The inventors of the Sabbath understood that it's much more complicated undertaking. You cannot cannot downshift casually or easily. That is why the Puritan and the Jewish Sabbaths were so exactingly intentional. The rules did did not exist to torture the faithful. They were meant to communicate the insight that interrupting the ceaseless round of striving requires a surprisingly strenuous act of the will. 
one that has to be bolstered by habit as well as social sanction. Guys, in the Bible, Sabbath rest means to cease regularly. And not only to rest physically, but to enjoy God and and the fruit of your labor. You remember when God created the world. After seven days, He rested. And what did He do? Does God need rest? No. What did He do? He looked at His creation and He said, it's very good. He enjoyed His creation. And Sabbath rest includes that for us. We are to enjoy the fruit of our labor. We are to enjoy God. And that's what Christianity does for you. It allows you now to rest in Christ. Real rest. Rest for your soul. Not this busy push 24-7, day by day, where we're so exhausted, we don't even know what rest for the soul is anymore. The gospel enables it. It enables rest. When you're in religion, you are on the treadmill of performance. You are always trying to figure out, I'm in trouble with God. Now I'm good today because I was a good boy or little girl. Now I'm not in trouble with God. Oh, I'm in trouble with God again. Treadmill. But the gospel says that you are right with God. Because you now have Christ righteousness. And when God sees you, He sees His Son. Because you are forgiven and free. And now you can worship Him with an open heart. And you can find that rest, that rest for your soul. The gospel frees us to enjoy God. I'm no longer motivated by duty. It is my desire. I have joy. Even when it's crazy busy. I can actually rest even when I'm strenuously working, because my soul, my soul is at rest. Religion wants to keep you busy. Religion wants to keep you going. It wants you always to be active. Now, Jesus makes a declaration here. He says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So he gives himself this designation, this title, Son of Man. Jesus uses this 80 times in the Gospels. And it is a reference to a messianic title. He's saying, I am Lord. I am Yahweh. I am Lord, even of the Sabbath. Matter of fact, in John, he used it interchangeably with the Son of God. So Jesus here to these Pharisees makes a major, major statement. It is a statement of divinity. And he's saying, I'm Lord, even of the Sabbath. And I can give you rest and rest for your soul. Do you realize that Jesus being God, that he is the creator of all? And we all say, yeah, I know that. Do you realize after God created the earth, after he created everything and man, Jesus himself is the one that said it is very good. And he rested. He is the creator. He's making that kind of a statement here. He's making an I am statement. And he does this all the time through the Gospels. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am your nourishment for your soul. I am the light of the world. I am holy and true. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no one who comes to the Father except through, through him. I am the true vine. It is through Him that we find our nourishment. I am the good shepherd. He cares for His. I am the door. There is no other way except Christ. I am the resurrection and the life. We are guaranteed 
a resurrection in Christ. And here he is saying, I am the Lord, even of the Sabbath. Jesus is all about Sabbath rest. Now, I don't know if any of you saw that movie, but most of us have Chariots of Fire, right? Now, Chariots of Fire, great movie. It's a movie about Eric Liddell and, and there's another main character in there, Harold Abrams. Now, Eric Liddell is a Christian and it's in the 1924 Olympics that's in Paris. And Eric Liddell is the one favored for the 100 meter dash. But as they're coming into Paris on the boat, he learns that the qualifying heats are on Sunday, the Sabbath. And so he goes, wait a minute. That is my day of rest. That's when I rest in the Lord. That's when I worship the Lord. He says, I'm not going to run. Man, it freaks out England. They're like, wait a minute. You're supposed to run. So what they do is they get, they get these high-powered lords to talk to him. And there's this guy by the name, his name is Lord Brinkenhead. And he says, we've decided to invite you for a little chat to see if there's any way that we can help resolve this situation. And then Lord Cadogan says, there's only one way to resolve this situation, that this man will change his mind. I want you to hear Liddell's response. He says, I am afraid there is no way, sir. I won't run on the Sabbath, and that's final. God made countries, and God makes the kings and the rulers by which they govern. And those rules say that the Sabbath is his, and I, for one, intend to keep it. What Eric Liddell did on the day of the qualifying heats, he went to a church and he preached. And he preached from Isaiah 40. And it, and it reads, But they will wait upon the Lord... They shall renew their strength and they shall mount up with wings of eagles and they shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and not feet. They shall not faint. Eric Liddell was at rest. He was at peace to run or not to run. And then it contrasts Eric Liddell with Harold Abrams. Now Abrams now, his main competitor is out of the race. And so he confides in Liddell and he tells Liddell this. He says, I used to be afraid to lose, but now I'm afraid to win. I have 10 seconds in which to prove the reason for my existence. And even then, I'm not sure I will. Abrams went on to win the gold, but the gold medal only gave him fleeting happiness. Later in the Olympics, we know that Liddell, he runs, he runs the 400-meter dash. This isn't a race he ever ran. Four times longer, and he wins. And somebody asked him, well, how did you do that? He says, I ran the first 200 as fast as I could, and then with God's help. I ran the next 200 even faster. Abrams was running out of a need to prove himself. Liddell, on the other hand, was simply running to please God. Do you see it? He was at rest in his soul because he understood that he is right with God. That is the gospel. Religion wants to lock you into the performance treadmill. Jesus is Lord, even of the Sabbath, then your world should revolve around Him. He is where you find your rest. He is the one we find rest for ourselves. So religion, it hinders rest. The gospel enables rest. Religion burdens people, but the gospel frees people. Last thing we see is religion accuses people, but the gospel, it restores. It restores people. Religion always accuses people of wrongdoing and it's never satisfied with a person's performance. But the gospel affirms a person's worth in Christ because we are restored to wholeness. We are made right with God. Look at verses 1 through 6 in chapter 3. It says, And he entered again into the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath in order that they might accuse him. 
And he said to the man with the withered hand, rise and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out immediately and began taking counsel with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Guys, religion is always looking for an accusation. Religion wants to find fault in you and say, see, you didn't keep up with the law. You didn't follow our rules. You're out. That's what these guys are doing. They're looking for a way to kick him out. Who is this guy? He's going against our religious traditions. But the gospel, the gospel, it restores. It brings wholeness to our life. So you can kind of get the picture here. Jesus goes from the grain fields and suddenly he goes into the synagogue. I think this is a setup. I think... These Pharisees have this guy with the withered hand there on purpose because they want to catch him in something. And they know that he just can't pass up somebody that's hurting. Time and time again, he's healing people. So they're setting this thing up. He goes into their area. This is their domain. And they think they're going to trap Jesus. What they don't know is he's actually going to trap them. Jesus is going to peg them. He's going to force them to look at their foolish traditions. The problem is, I think, is that religion, it fears a real move of God. Religion fears that God's going to actually do something. Because religion likes everything in its place. And you cannot put God in a box. And when the gospel is shared, guys, things happen. Real things happen spiritually. You've got to understand that these Pharisees had not seen a move of God in over 400 years. They have no idea what a move of God looks like. John the Baptist was the first real prophet in 400 years. So these guys are clueless what a move of God looks like. All of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene. This guy can preach. This guy can heal. He can cast out demons. Wow! But they're threatened. The gospel threatens religion. And so these guys want to catch him. They've got to catch him. So look at verse 2. It says that they were watching him. They're watching. Oh, what's he going to do? Why? Because they want to accuse him. They want to bring an accusation against him. They're threatened. And they think, man, we're going to trap this guy. And then Jesus just sets them up. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says to the man with the withered hand, he says, hey, come here. So he has him get up. It's kind of like a, in the Westerns, two guys are kind of facing off. It's kind of the picture here. He, you know, Jesus is here, and the Pharisees are there, and got the man right here, and everything, the pins and needles are waiting to see what's going to happen. And verse 4 says, he says to them this, he asks them a question. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Here's their heart. They kept silent. He poses a question that they cannot answer because either way they lose. Now, they know to do harm is wrong on the Sabbath. So they're, you know, they're like, we can't say that. But then if they say it's okay to do good, uh-oh, that means they've got to break their tradition. And so they just stay quiet. The gospel restores, guys. They can't respond. Religion wants you to always feel dissatisfied. Religion always wants you to feel like you're never going to earn it. But Jesus provides a way of freedom. 
reconciliation, restoration. Jesus is calling us to truly rest in Him. Religion wants to keep you weary. The gospel wants to provide you rest for your soul. Now, most of us, I've got to be honest with you, when I talk to people in the church, most people are always trying to prove themselves to God. They're working and working, trying to say, I'm good enough to please God. At the end of creation, God rested, and He looked at His work, and He said, it is very good, it's finished. And at the end of redemption on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished, and now we can rest. The work is done, and we can find rest, true rest. Guys, there are no accusations against us, not one. I'd like you to see this. Go to Romans 8. Look at verse 33. Religion wants to accuse you. It wants to bring the weight of doing upon you. In Romans chapter 8, verse 33, Romans 8, 33, Paul says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? And I'll scroll down and look at verses 38 and 39. Romans 8, 38 says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. You are free. You are free indeed. Jesus' life, His perfect life, was substituted for yours. His death was substituted for yours. His resurrection has guaranteed you a place in heaven. And you are free. You are free now to rest in the Lord. The gospel brings restoration. We are free indeed. Not accusation. Restoration. And it says here that He was angered and grieved. So when Jesus asks them the question, they don't answer. Why? Because their hearts are hard. And his first response being God is he's angered. God gets angry at hard hearts. Ones that won't listen to the truth of the gospel. But in the tense that you look at, this anger is momentary. What lasts is the grieving. First he's angered, and then it says he's grieved. He's broken hearted at their hard heart. And that is the heart of an unbeliever, one who will not listen to the truth that you are free, that Christ came to free you, to give you life and life abundantly. So what Jesus does, is he has the man come up and he looks at him and he says, hey, stretch out your hand. And he stretches it out and it says right here, he was restored. The reason, that's, there's a reason they put that word in there. It's a picture of our soul being restored. It's more than just the healing. That's what the gospel does, is it frees us, it restores us. And what do the Pharisees do at this point? At that point, you would think, wow, praise God, he healed this man. They could care less about the man. It says that they go out and they partner with the Herodians. Now, the Herodians, they weren't religious. They basically were partners with Herod. Now, religious Jews, they hated Herod. And the Herodians, they partnered with Herod. Basically, the Herodians were enemies of the religious Jews. But what do the religious Jews do? They partner with him. Why? Because Jesus is a threat. And you have a picture here where they're willing to get together and fight against Jesus. 
because he's bringing, he's bringing in something that absolutely blows away their religion. And they cannot fight against it, so they've got to put him down. They have to kill him. And that's exactly what they want to do, is they want to destroy him. I don't know if you've read that book called Unbroken. It's written by Laura Hildebrand. She's the one that wrote Seabiscuit. And it's the story of Louis Zapparini. And Louis Zapparini in World War II, in 1943, he was on a bomber with his mates. And it went down in the ocean about 800 miles off Oahu. And he was on. There were three guys. Three guys survived the crash in the ocean. One of them died, but two of them lasted 47 days. The longest known record of anybody surviving in the open ocean. And you'd think, wow, he survived. How good? Well, it wasn't good because he was picked up by the Japanese. And he spent two years in a concentration camp called the Sugamo Prison. And there was one guard, his name was Wontanabe. They called him the bird. It was a nickname. This guy relentlessly, every day, tortured, tortured Louis Zapparini. Well, in 1944, Louis Zapparini was freed. He comes back to the States. And everything seems really good. But guys, he himself descended into a self-made prison. He became deeply depressed, had nightmares constantly. He wanted to kill Wantanabe. That was his whole goal in life. He wanted to get back to Japan, and I'm going to take this man's life. And in 1949, his wife talked him to go into a Billy Graham crusade. Billy Graham gives the message, and it says that Louis is just so upset with the message. He just can't wait to get out of there. And then Billy Graham says, I want people to come forward and receive Christ. Louis Zapparini turns to run out. And as he turns to run out, he remembers a promise he made God. When he was on that raft, he was dying of thirst. And he said, God, if you will give me water, I will serve you my whole life. And right then it started to rain. God brought that to his memory. He turned around and received Christ. And he was restored. In fact, he was not only restored. He went back a year later to Japan and preached the gospel to his captives that were now in prison. And he had learned that Watanabe actually took his own life. And he felt something he'd never felt before. Compassion for the man who was his torturer. That is restoration. That is what the gospel is all about. That's what Christ does. Religion will burden you. Religion will not give you rest. But the gospel...